to another episode of Admit One My Reality Podcast. I'm Dr. David Jones, the CEO and founder of Wellspring Family Community Institute. And I have the pleasure today of welcoming to the listening audience one fantastic gentleman in the School of Psychology. He has his own institute, none other than Dr. Rick Wallace. I want to read to you just a little bit. I can't do it all, but Dr. Wallace was born in the 60s to a 15-year-old mother and an absent father. Rick Wallace was taken in at nine months by his great-grandparents, and they legally adopted him when he was two. He was extremely precocious as a child, and his grandmother would add quite loquacious. Grandmother took him from church to church, and the other organizations put a microphone in his hand and made him recite it before the crowd, the creation story. He became known as the little boy who does the creation story. His infinity with the stage and crowds have never dissipated. Dr. Wallace's grandmother believed it was her God-ordained responsibility to invest in him, and she surely did. Dr. Wallace says that his grandfather was the one who taught him how to be a man. Born in the 1900s, his grandfather had to stop schooling in the second grade to help his parents, who were sharecroppers. Dr. Wallace is a proud father of 13, ages 8 to 37. He happily shares that he considers each one a blessing from God. He had a wonderful childhood thanks to his grandparents, despite never meeting his father and an absent mother. During this time, he was given an immense appreciation for scholarship and carried the natural gift of athleticism throughout his entire life, and certainly he has put both to good use. I want to welcome our listening audience, and I want to welcome you, Dr. Wallace, for being here. Appreciate it, appreciate it. Listen, let's start off by just asking the question, who was Dr. Rick Wallace? I mean, on the surface, I'm any other guy. Um, I love, I feel, I hurt, I yearn. Uh, I guess if I were to look and say what makes me me, which means the uniqueness of each individual, it's my approach and my passion to the things I hold dear. And it begins, uh, we've had a lot of conversations, so mm-hmm. you, you, you know the intimate side of my passion. And so I guess I would say the thing that drives me is I see myself before I see myself in a professional sense, before I see myself in what I do academically or socially, I see myself as a black man. And there are those who would ask me to extract my blackness from my manhood. Mm -hmm. And it's it's inextricably bound. It's interwoven. It's what I am. There is no separation of the two. Everything that drives me comes from that black manhood. Okay. So how I view women, how I work and deal with my children and other children, uh, how I handle other men, all comes from, from that perspective. So it's a black man yearning to be the best version of himself. And of course, I have some knowledge and some background, Doc, on you, and I've shared with you uh, at my home, and uh, we have chopped it up, and we, you know, broke bread together. Right. And you are certainly different. Uh, when I say different, I mean that 
you are a psychologist, you're a licensed psychologist, um, but what makes you in the field of psychology different from the mainstream psychologist? I think it's in the, the definition or the defining uh, point in that is in the question. I'm not mainstream. I'm, I'm as, as fringe as you can possibly be. Uh, it's one of the reasons I don't operate within the licensing or move that way I normally operate in uh, some other designation that doesn't require me to deal with that because I am so outside of the box. Number one is if psychology is about uh, a reflection of your experiences and it's more than that as we'll get into this conversation mm -hmm. we're going to find out that psychology is more than just what you think it, and it's not just your experiences but if it includes your experiences then the uniqueness of your experiences must be considered in the dealing with or the treatment or the observation or the study or the research well said and so it's hard to sit up and apply a Eurocentric idea to an Afrocentric equation and so the first thing I had to do was I had to break down the Eurocentric construct, which that is what they teach, and then reconstruct it so that it could consume the Afro, the Afrocentric uh, experience. And so that's where I differ from the average psychology is I'm not boxed into a Eurocentric construct, a concept about what I'm supposed to think and how I'm supposed to approach it. I still use scientific method to break down mm -hmm. and understand, but I do it from my uh, own experiences and the observation and the history mm -hmm. of my people, which is different and unique uh, to any other group. And, and well said, because you are unapologetic about your disposition in the field of psychology. And it, and it gets me in a lot of trouble uh, in the sense of not that I care about being in trouble, but it gets me in a lot of trouble because people want you to stay inside the box. Uh, people want you to uh, make them comfortable. And when we talk about that, there's two sides of that equation. There is the white side of things that say, how dare you challenge the status quo? How dare you challenge? <laughs> years and years of, and it's a direct uh, impugning or uh, attempted conviction on the intellectual genius of black minds like Dr. Amos Wilson, doc, like Dr. Naeem Akbar, those who preceded me like Dr. Francis Chris Wilson, who, who preceded me and challenged me. I'm, I'm sitting here because of Dr. Francis Chris Wilson. 1985, I walk in from high school and at that time I'm determining whether I'm going into psychology or law. I knew it was going to be one of the two because I had to be somewhere I could make a difference. And here I flip on the television and Dr. Welsing is on the Phil Donahue show. It's important to understand it in context. 1985 is literally right on the heels of this argument of the black inferior, intellectual inferiority where they are pushing that we're just naturally dumber than they are and they are naturally smarter than we are and they are using the IQ uh, mm -hmm. uh, construct in order to make that argument and so I had did a lot of reading on it and I knew it was crap but you know I'm still young and I'm still developing but again I'm ahead of my my age group as far as understanding I'll, I, that's that's been a part of my gift I think everybody has one but she is defending the crest theory of color confrontation which was her thesis and dissertation when she became a doctor uh, uh, 
of psychology. She's also an MD. Mm -hmm. And so she's a psychiatrist. And so she's defending it. And she's defending it not only against her white counterparts, but her male white counterparts. And this is in 1985. And when I finished watch that, it's psychology. The lawyer thing went out the window. And it's been full steam ahead ever since then. But in that construct, when people look at me, they want... He can't possibly be. I'm not trying to fit in your box, so I probably don't sound like it. I probably don't move like it. Uh, I'm not using your terminology consistently, even though I do use them so that people can make references. But my point is the people I'm working with are the people I care about. And it doesn't mean I have any animosity towards anyone else. Mm -hmm. You take care of home first. And so when it comes to that, I'm unapologetic. I'm, and I've gotten myself in trouble business-wise because I've had clients come to me who don't look like me that want me to tone down my rhetoric, tone down my statement and my presentation because they don't want to be affiliated with it because their clients mm -hmm. are probably going to have a problem with it. And it's like, hey, if you got to go your separate ways, I appreciate the time we work together, but I'm going to speak what needs to be speak because I'm the voice of my people, not you. And that is just the direct approach I take. And it's an approach that, as I said earlier, when I met you and came to know you not only as a friend, but a scholar, you were so unapologetic with your disposition and you're well read, you're well researched. What is something that most people don't know about Dr. Rick Wallace? Oh man, if you were to ask my ex-wife, she would say <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm crazy, but in a good way. <laughs> I mean, we would be sitting up on the sofa and like, I'm the antagonist in the house. But my kids, you have to be on your toes because they'll be recording you. You won't know it. You end up on Snapchat or Instagram or something. So I'm going to beat them to the punch. So, and so she would always say, if your people, everybody that sees you sees this uptight, always serious person. If they knew how crazy he was, it would just totally blow their minds. So I'm a, you're around me when I'm at the shop. So you've seen the, the bolted down, this guy's about this work, he's about to do this. You've seen me oh, yes. on stage. The three dimensions of right. Dr. Wallace. And, and you've seen me sitting in front of the guys just having a blast. Exactly. And I think that's what most people don't know is because when the public sees me, they see me working. A stoic disposition. Yeah, you know, serious to the point. Uh, and actually, most of my time is spent enjoying life, enjoying my friends. Uh, you and I have an affinity for cigars and chess mm -hmm. and history and music. And so we're we, we in that space, and that's, that's the thing that I have. And I think that um, that brings the balance to my life, and it makes me better at what I do because I'm not consumed with something so heavy because mm. what I deal with is heavy. Very much so, yeah. very much so. And the average person on the laity level of, of society, would they run from you or would they acquiesce towards you for knowledge? What, what, what do you say that the vibe that you give? A person who is magnetic to others or a person that has somewhat of a, uh, a force field I am the antithesis of the average PhD. Um, the average PhD gives off a vibe of superiority, gives off a vibe of exclusivity. Uh, I'm, 
uh, speaks from an elevated platform. One of the, one of the things that I consistently say when I'm speaking or when I'm about to speak is I don't speak, preach, or teach from a platform of perfection. I'm just another man who has a set of skills and a mm -hmm. gift. And because I believe everyone has a gift, I see everyone equally. So when I walk into a room, I'm not walking in to suck the air out. I'm walking in to bring life. And because of that, I deal with people differently. So I tend to draw people to me, even when I ain't trying to and don't want to. Mm -hmm. I could be sitting at the bar at Papados, just trying to have a nice drink or something. I guarantee somebody's going to sit down and start talking. It's just what happens. And I've gotten used to it now, and I embrace it now because that's my opportunity to be a blessing. Uh, I don't believe in coincidences. Mm -hmm. I believe that everything happens for a reason. Providence. Yeah, absolute. And it's up to us to seize the moments. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, so many of us shrink when that moment comes. And I think one of the things that has created the closeness that we experience is you're not a person that shrinks either. Uh, you step into moments, you seize moments, and you don't have a problem sharing space, uh, which is a problem I think that we have in our community amongst men because I Particularly think- Particularly black to African-American male. Right, because we've been made small for so long. Mm -hmm. uh, we've lacked the nat- There's a natural yearning for power for, for any male regardless of race, most of the men get to experience it at some level, in some way, in some place, in the home, uh, on the job, at, in the culture of society as a whole, if you're a white man. Mm -hmm. uh, black, I remember reading um, a, a, a position paper, a, a thesis called The Negro Family, A Case for National Anthem, a Case for National Action. It was written by uh, Daniel Patrick Monahan. It's affectionately known as the Money Hand report. report. Yes, sir. And there's a part in the Money Hand report where he says that we really truly need to understand the plight of the black man. He says, it is the natural yearning of any male to stand up and square their shoulders and beat their chest. It's natural for the man to want to strut. He says, everything from a four-star general to a bantam rooster struts, except for the black man. The moment he holds his heads up, he's told, hang that cocky nigger. And that's been the story. Has that been a systemic beatdown psychologically? It's a microaggression, even when it's not spoken. Um, you got to think that was a point in time, man, that we were not even to look what we're not even allowed to look white men in the eye. During the same time, we couldn't acknowledge each other. This is where the head nod comes from. Mm -hmm. The I see you, hey. That head the nod unspoken. comes from an unspoken acknowledgement of you're not unseen. I acknowledge you. I see you. And we develop these codes of being able to deal with each other. But the problem is now, as we become more and more commodified and the traits that we possess outside of our bank accounts have been dissipated and diminished in value, it's become more and more competitive because the only way we can experience power now in our minds is if we've got the bag. So, so everybody's chasing the bag. Everybody's trying to prove they're better than the next guy. And, 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 and we've gotten real primitive, but we don't understand we're primitive. We actually think we've advanced, but we've actually digressed, uh, you think? digressed and regressed in, in, in our approach. The primitive part of it is at our most primitive if you look at male species anywhere else, the whole thing is the dominant alpha gets all the women. 
from the lion, the animal kingdom, from the animal the lion, kingdom on up, the silverback right, gorilla. Right. The the stronger and the the better you are, the more you beat down all the other animal, the other males, and show Mustafa. Everybody, all the women flow to you. So the the idea now is, I don't need to prove I'm the best version of myself. I need to prove I'm better than him. And what happens is, as we compete, we lose unity. And unity is our strength. If you go back and you look at um, J. Edgar Hoover in the 60s, he was interviewed, and one of the questions he was asked was, uh, what's the greatest threat to national security? And in that conversation, and during that time, we had a Cold War going with the Soviet Union. Uh, China was becoming an economic threat. All the stuff going on in the Middle East, Cuba had just had missiles pointed at us and his response was black unity. Out of all of this, his response was black unity. And what you gotta understand is that's our power, that's our superpower, that's our natural innateness. We are not naturally individual minded. That's a Eurocentric thing. So Doc, how do we get back to the solidarity within our culture, within our community, within our home, within our societies? simple answer the simple answer is and, and I speak on this I write on this I created black man lead and a bunch of other things which is a rite of passage initiative for beyond black men the simple thing is and I say this often when I'm speaking to groups or talking with other guys is we what I say is we're going to need a group of men who are willing to plant seeds that we may not live long enough to see come to fruition what I mean by that is you've got 246 years of chattel slavery, 12 years of reconstruction, 10 years of black codes, 70 plus years of Jim Crow, and then you've got everything after mass incarceration, mis miseducation, gentrification, and on down the line. And that's all this re-injury going on. And you don't undo that with a quick fix. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. So what do you do? You've got to go through the process of healing. You've got to go through the process of reconstructing. So what we really need, ideally, socially, when you look at the development and the progression of generations, even uh, the, 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 um, the Jews of the Holocaust time, it took them probably their grandkids before they were able to diminish them. But they were able to recover a lot quicker. Number one, they didn't go through 246 years of their oppression. Mm -hmm. It was 12. But also, they made a concerted effort after realizing that something wasn't right to figuring out what that was and to doing something about it. And we've been in a constant battle of just surviving. So the answer to it is you have to start with a group that's unaffected, our babies. Build an identity in them. Now, when you go back, to the patriarchs of slavery, mm -hmm. and you look at all those that have bled and died, and, and American soil is saturated with our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And then you travel and you migrate up to, let's say, the civil rights movement. You know, you have your Martins and your Malcolms, and 
You go, you got your Marcus Garvey's over abroad that have made great strides in the indoctrination of blackness, okay? But now you ask a third grader, the average third grader, they don't know who they are. Where, where is the disconnect? Well, are we, are, we, are we being honest right now? We're being truthfully honest. All right. Narratives are controlled by the media. So when you start talking about images, you start talking about identity, that's why it's so important to get them when they're young so that you can inculcate and impress upon them who they are because if you don't, the media will, the school teachers will, and if you've got school, if 76% if, if of your school teacher population are middle-aged white women, and they are just naturally f afraid of black males. That's why you have the disproportionality of special education referrals of young black males for things like op oppositional defiant disorder, ADHD, and things that way. Something I can medicate you for, something that I can keep you out of my classroom. Sedated. Right, and so what you have to look at is all of those different uh, things happening simultaneously, you have to sit up and say, okay, what am I going to do differently uh, so that we aren't dealing with this bombardment, this disconnect, this situation. And I hope I'm, I'm getting to the crust, the, the uh, crest of your question, but my, my, my look at it when I see it is we have to be willing to say, you know what? year after year after year, generationally. And when we talk about generationally, you've, we've had this conversation before. We're not just talking about uh, psychologically. We're not just talking about a social progression. We're talking about ge genetics. We're literally talking about this being written in the code of our genes and our cells. Every cell has its own brain. Every cell is able to record the memory of what happens. That's what trauma is. Trauma is actually recorded in the body before it's re remembered in the mind. And this is a good segue because we had you to come out and do two symposiums on what many have not heard of in the laity community is epigenetics. Mm -hmm. uh, the last symposium was on the 27th of January of 2024, this year. And the response to your presentation was overwhelming. I'm still getting calls at the office uh, soliciting for you to do a part three. Dr. Wallace, in, in layman's terms, what is epigenetics? Um, in layman's terms, epigenetics is simply the uh, chemical imprint of a, an emphatic emotional experience above the gene. So in other words, when you experience something, even, even something exciting and happy, at, a, at an extreme emotional level, there is a chemical reaction. Every time you have an emotion, sadness, happiness, joy, anger, you're creating a chemical response. A bunch of things happens with these chemicals. One of the things happens is you create what's called an epigenetic tag, which is a chem chemical imprint. This tag sits on top. Now, what happens is if that tag is from a negative experience, trauma, it, it impacts your psychological resilience. Your psychological resilience is how much negativity can you take and still be mentally okay? Well, say this is your threshold for trauma. And say a healthy person's mentality and psychological resistance is here. 
This is why when the shooting happens at whatever, for instance, we just had one at a church here mm -hmm. what, yesterday. Okay, so this is why this person doesn't get traumatized by it. And the person whose uh, psychological resist resistance is here does. Well, who do you think has the lowest psychological resistance in America? Blacks, simply because we have been consistently under the throes of some kind of threat. And what happens is with the basic, what we, what we refer to as PTSD, is there are a number of different symptoms that come from PTSD, which is one traumatic event that mm -hmm. has an imprint, mm -hmm. genetic imprint upon you, a cellular memory. When people see people acting out with PTSD and they go, why can't they just get control of it? Why can't you reason with them? Because their brain isn't working. Their body is. Their mind is taking over. They're re-experiencing the very thing that traumatized them. They aren't remembering it. They're reliving it. And it's a completely different thing. When I remember it, I remember everything. I may have a conjured emotion. But when I'm reliving it, the threat is still present. So then I get re-traumatized by the trauma I've already experienced. It's ever-present. Yeah. And then what happens in a situation with complex trauma, which is multiple uh, consecutive traumatic experience. It could be the same experience, for instance, a child that's molested in the home mm -hmm. consecutively. So now or, it's compounded. Right. Or it could be you got hit, you got shot, somebody stole this, you lost your mom, you lost your dad, you went to prison, all these different things, which we talked about and we'll, uh, maybe we'll get into if we have time, adverse childhood experiences, which is a subsector of epigenetics. But what happens is when you've got all that, now you're stacking on top of the original traumatic experience that you never dealt with. So it's like a weakening of one's immune system if... And physically, you're actually weakening your immune system. So it's not just a good analogy, it's actually happening. So what happens is these, these tags are on top of the gene. They don't change DNA sequence. Your DNA sequence is every, everything about you. It tells you uh, what your height is gonna be, your eye color, your hair color, hair type, uh, temperament, all these different things are determined by what's in this DNA and it comes together from 23 chromosomes from your mom, 23 chromosomes from your dad, the 46 chromosomes that make you a human. Well, these DNA sequences are unique. The only people that share identical uh, DNA are identical, identical twins. twins. Uh, so everybody else has a unique uh, identity. So the sequence doesn't change. But what epigenetics does is it impacts the gene's ability to transcribe the DNA, interpret it, and then execute what it's telling it to do. Now, this is heavy. This is very heavy. Now, when it comes to, let's just drill down to the urban communities, the impoverished, okay, the depressed, the oppressed, how does that play in and then if it alters and has a great impact, as you said, are we looking at doom and gloom for our urban children who are trapped in urban life with these aces as you, as you described? What, what we are is in a situation where we have to change the environment in order to get a different result. Uh, the so basically what we're talking about when we talk about epigenetics, we're talking about environmental influences. Uh, when we talk about environment, normally most people uh, make the postulation you're talking about what's in the air. 
you know, what may be in the food. Mm -hmm. To You know, and carcinogens mm -hmm. and all of this stuff like that. But when I talk about environment, I'm talking about the level of peace you can experience at any given time versus the level of stress. So you're talking crime. I'm talking about what we call um, in my field or our field of study is urban hassle. Uh, so it includes crime, gang act, gang activity uh, in the inner city, gunshots in the middle of the night, sirens in the middle of the night. In the Midwest, you're talking about L trains uh, running by your building all time night, wall rattling, uh, navigating uh, drug use and gang violence just to get to school and to get home. So you just described you just described the ghetto. Yeah, the hood, and so that environment is as toxic of an environment you can be in. You would rather be living next to a plant, inhaling the fumes from a power plant, than to be consistent. Now the crazy thing is, most of the community is close to the power plant of the hood too, but that's a whole nother story. But, <laughs> but, but it's, it, it's wild. But actually being in that environment, and we're talking about, let's just say adverse childhood experiences. There are 10. We've, we've gone over them before, but some of the primaries are abuse. So you're talking about physical abuse, sexual abuse, sexual abuse, emotional, emotional abuse. abuse. You're talking about neglect in the same sense. You're talking about uh, parents separating. Incarceration. Uh, parent, uh, parents separating. Incarceration is another form of an abandonment. Someone in the family being diagnosed with a mental illness. All of these different things or we call ACEs. Each one of them is considered an A. Each one of the things I named, and it's like 10 primaries. Mm -hmm. Each one is considered an ACE. When you get four ACEs, these are some of the things that you can look forward to over the course of your life, even after you've come out of that environment. So this is why changing the environment is so important, because the enduring impact of it, even after you come out of the environment, any a child with four ACEs is 12 times more likely to attempt suicide two and a half times more likely to uh, develop ischemic heart disease, the number one killer in mm. the U.S., uh, two and a half times more likely to develop some autoimmune deficiency like uh, lupus. Uh, the suicide fit in that equation? Oh, uh, yeah. That's what, 12 times more likely. For suicide. To, to, for suicide. It's in, and so that's this exponential threat that comes from feeling threatened. So in essence... Promiscuity is higher among children with four ACEs. Uh, risky behavior outside of promiscuity, always doing something at risk. So sexual risk, just doing things that you would not normally see someone doing because you know it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And you're wondering like, what, what, what are they thinking? All of this comes from that type of childhood behavior. And again, this all comes because that tag has interfered with that gene's ability to decipher what it's supposed to be doing. So for instance, in immune systems, the immune system is what keeps you healthy. That's why you can get some places you can go around the world and they are healing themselves. No medication. So let's talk about that. Okay. The power of the mind, the power of faith. Okay. There, there is a cliche that I know you've heard throughout the years. Uh, I may have been born in the ghetto, but the ghetto's not in me. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that the the panacea to exit from this environment, exit spiritually, exit mentally, though you're physically still there? Is that a panacea to alter this imprint? 
I, I wouldn't be as strong as to say a panacea because it's so all-encompassing, but I think that you have to have the right mindset. Uh, but what I do with my clients, so to speak, is whether it's a performance issue, they're not performing at the level that they feel or know they can, and I'm looking at them and knowing they can, but they're nowhere close to it, or they're coming out of a traumatic experience and they are really truly not living up to their potential because they are all the things that come with PTSD. Well, the thing you want to do is you want to reprogram the mind. As a man thinketh, so is he. And it's real. The healing begins with the mind. That's where the whole placebo effect comes mm -hmm. from. It's not what you take, it's what you believe it will do. It's if what I you believe, believe that works. I, if I believe something strongly enough, it begins to impact my genetic performance. It begins to impact my cellular performance. And so it's not as much as what I do as what I believe it will do. And that's the explanation for the exception. And when I say the explanation for the exception, the kids that don't get impacted by it. Something happens to where they believe I'm one of those kids that's, that, that, that life has something for them outside of the ghetto, that life has something for them outside of hurt and pain, and that they can do something beyond what average people do. And then they execute. And this is, I, I want you, and I know that we need to get you back, Dr. Wallace, but I want to do a part two because you're hitting on something that I think that the world needs to hear. The what and the how. The what is you catapulting yourself outside of the impoverished conditions, where it be your faith, where it be your mindset, where it be your determination to get out but mm -hmm. yet you're in. And right. then it comes to the how-to. How does one do that? And that's what I want to continue with our part two. I want you to elaborate, particularly when it comes to trauma. We have so many of our young black and browns that have been traumatized by, by any one or several of the aces that you eloquently shared. Mm -hmm they don't see themselves as able to get out of that traumatized state. Many don't have the, uh, even the first step in getting outside that trauma. Will you come back and revisit with us and give us some how-tos and help our listening audience be able to, those who are listening to you that have been impacted by trauma, impacted by their negative environment, impacted by family dysfunction, some of the how-tos to escape and to elevate above their condition. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I consider it an honor. This has been part one of a dialogue with Dr. Rick Wallace. We have enjoyed his presence, his thought, his expertise, and his knowledge. And I want you to tune in as we revisit the trauma and epigenetics as we continue on the how-tos how to lift yourself beyond your environment, beyond your negativity, beyond the birth that you've been uh, raised in, that you have settled in and feel that there's no way out. We want you to tune in to part two with Dr. Rick Wallace. Thank you so much for joining in to Admit One, my reality podcast. Hello everybody, Dr. Rick Wallace here, dropping in with a little special 
announcement for those who have followed me for any stretch of time. You know, outside of the businesses that I run, like Myriad Business Solutions, the Visionetics Institute, Odyssey Media Group, I also do a great deal of work inside of the inner city communities uh, in Houston, Dallas, and other areas. Uh, I'm asking now as we push a fundraiser that you support what the Odyssey Project is doing in the inner cities, uh, especially with programs like Black Men Lead, which is a rite of passage uh, initiative, and Restoring Ghetto for, Ghetto's Forgotten Daughters, which is a program focused on helping young girls, but boys as well, suffering from childhood sexual abuse, uh, rape, molestation, domestic abuse, uh, absentee fatherhood, and so many other things. Uh, the information will be in the box. Thank you. I'm free to be free.